Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, it's Lainey. Hey, it's Duana. Welcome to Show Your Work. We're back. Thank you for amazing comments on last week's episode with Taylor Jenkins Reid. I've been enjoying them all week. Is that narcissistic? To no. Enjoy your own? Not at all. It's only a segue for us to tell people or nag people to read Daisy Jones and the Six. Because our second episode with Taylor specifically digging into the book and the show is coming up. So read up so you know what we're talking about. My question for you though, mm-hmm. this week combines work, names, and royals. This, this is, is all my favorites. Yeah. This is going to be the week. It looks like Meghan Markle and Prince Harry will welcome their baby in… Maybe by the time we post this episode. Right. So you… That is your beat. Yep. You're going to be writing the post. Sure. The name's going to come. You're going to be analyzing the name. Have you done any pre-work to prepare? I've done a little, yeah. I've been asked a lot and been on some media outlets commenting on what I think it will be. So, yeah, I'm studying up a little. Uh, What it won't be is Diana. Can I just be super clear? Thank you, because a lot of the people who read our site think it's going to be Diana, and I think I wrote a post saying, you're wrong. Now, why don't you tell them why they're wrong? Okay, I get why people think that right? He was so close with his mother. It's an honor to do that. Blah, blah, blah. Here's why it's not going to happen. Who is more aware of the oppression of the press than Meghan and Harry? Nobody, right? Right. It's incomprehensible that they would give the child that name and that legacy, right? Oh, the second yep. coming of Diana, the new Diana reborn, yep. blah, blah, blah. There's no way. No. It's so much pressure. It's hurtful. Not to mention that Princess Charlotte is already Charlotte Elizabeth Diana. Do you really think that they're going to take a borrowed name for that child, even if they would have six months ago? Yeah. Everything we know about the tension or lack thereof, faux tension, they're not going to do that. There's no chance. Okay, so uh, back to you and your work for this and your pre-work. Right. So, I mean, everybody loves your name posts and your celebrity name posts when the babies are born, but this one you know is going to have like a bigger spotlight on it. It's going to have a bigger spotlight. Here's what I'm trying to do that's the most difficult. I think that Harry and Meghan are going to choose a name that is as traditional and as theoretically familiar but not overused. I think they're going to choose a name that has some resonance in the African-American community, right? Which is to say, um, obviously, all of the names that are sort of traditionally used in black circles were often kind of gleaned from, like, either inherited from slave owners who called people those names uh, 
throwing out their African names or were otherwise sort of learned from missionaries in Africa and so forth. But there's a real distinction, yeah. right, between, uh, for example, the one that comes to mind, and this is not biblical per se, but the one that comes to mind is the name Jemima, of course, has been associated with the stereotype of Aunt Jemima on the pancake box, and the people who have used it have been uh, the British upper crust who don't need to worry about that association. So there are names in that realm. Kezia is a name that I love. Obviously, Jemima is too close to their circles, but names of that ilk. So I'm definitely thinking about names in that corridor that are going to be not unfamiliar, but have a an angle to remind us mm-hmm. exactly who they are the same way they've been doing all this time. Yeah. I mean, my predictions are rooted in the same philosophy, but they're probably more mainstream than Kezia, for example. Right. So I, I think I told you mine. Mine were Frederick and Maya. Um, I however, think Maya's too short, mm-hmm. but Frederick's very possible and hasn't been in the royal family for a long time. It would just… A little Freddie would be hilarious. It, absolutely. Um, however, again, not going to be Diana, y'all. No way. But it is interesting that I think that we all think more about what a girl's name will be um, because boys' names across cultures, across ponds, across whatever, tend to have more similarity. Yeah. I still think that you might be… It might be something that is longer or that surprises us in the way that it feels slightly more modern. Jeremiah is a thing that could be, like technically speaking, Jeremiah is uh, Old Testament, it's biblical, it's useful. It doesn't exactly have that same British feeling. Yeah. But there's no reason why it shouldn't, Mm -hmm. right? So it'll be very interesting. I also just want to point out that the last, like, royal name scandal, such as it is, right? when Princess Beatrice was named, I don't know if you remember this, it was like people were flabbergasted and jaws dropped. But there were other royals called Beatrice in the line, like, you know, from 1800s or whatever. Right, but the name was absolutely yeah. out of use at that time. Yeah. Like, I'm sure, don't write to me and say that your aunt was Beatrice or whatever. I'm <laughs> sure there was one or two. Right. But it was utterly untouched in modern times. Mm-hmm. You couldn't throw a stone and find one, which is so ironic because, of course, now there are Beatrices and Beatrixes by the handful. Yeah. But this is one that you've been looking forward to, right? I mean, you're, like, extra jacked about this. Look, I am. I really am. But it's because… I want them to live up to my expectations. Like, I'm thinking all the time about their wedding when I think about this and how… We devoted a podcast to it? We did devote a podcast to it, (laughs) but how surprised we were at how much flavor and tone it had. It was still a royal wedding and everything was according to procedure, but it had a lot of modern flow and touches relative to what we had been used to, right? And relative to, like, William and Kate, which was basically, like, paper dolls. Like, there was life to it. Okay, so are you prepared to be disappointed? I'm aware of it. The last time I was really, really disappointed by celebrity baby names, it was George Clooney and Amal. Yeah. I 
was expecting. What is it? Ella and It's Ella and Alexander are their <laughs> twins. <laughs> You went into a fucking monotone. <laughs> I look, and I wrote about this on the site, and some people got mad at me. And there's nothing wrong with those names, but in so many ways, George and Amal have been kind of anti-regular Hollywood, and, and they have changed the face of what that means, and have been very vocal about the fact that she's a top human rights lawyer and he's just yep. her movie star husband. Yep. You know, like he's the layabout in that situation. And I was, yeah, I was hoping for the ascension of maybe some names that were of Arabic extraction or that had a more Middle Eastern tone or anything that was a little less straightforward to the point where I think I posited that those were decoy names. <laughs> yes. I think I said that those were maybe uh-huh. like uh which you've done before. Like you you I think do you still think Briar Rose, um, which is uh, Rachel Bilson's daughter, is uh, a decoy name? Well, I have to say that I was helped out by some readers who told me that Briar Rose was a I think it was like a Disney king. It was Sleeping yeah. Beauty's yeah. like secret name because the real Sleeping Beauty's name is Aurora. And so she can operate in the world as Briar Rose and be safe. So there was hints that maybe that was the case. I don't know if that's a if that's a decoy name. I don't know if if we know of anybody who has successfully deployed a decoy. Right. Name. Uh, but yeah, I have high hopes, and yet I have high hopes. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put yeah. it there. So yes, I'm waiting on this one. All the time. I'm going to ask you why you say, oh, this is the week. What is it that makes you say it's now for sure? Because we've been saying that for a month. I have sources who say that the due date, like, was a few days ago. So it's any time now. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And she's exited public life long enough. I love that expression, exited public life. She's been on, you know, maternity leave and not seen long enough now that, yeah, it's, it's time. But at the same time, my whole thing is like, because they're not doing the on the steps of the hospital photo call, for all we know, when we meet the baby, it could be four to six days old, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, she could give birth. She could be in labor right now, and we might not know until Friday, for instance. Mm -hmm. But you know what? You do it, in their case, sooner rather than later, because the sooner you do it, the less likely someone else is going to leak it for you. Right. And that there will be… Yeah. Yeah. That you have to sort of hold off the press crawling right. through your air ducts. And given what the fuck's happened over the last few months with leaks coming out of inside the palace and all kinds of gossip and, you know, clearly they're not able to contain, quote, palace staffers who are running to this paper and that magazine and this outlet and whatnot talking, you don't know who's going to, like, spill it. And so… If I were them, and if you're operating by any kind of royal slash celebrity standard, you want to control the narrative. For sure. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, but yeah, I, I like that they are keeping us guessing and on our toes. Yep. Uh, and in answer to your question, I'm just going to have to like pull up an online Bible and start combing through for names because I do suspect it's going to be something that we, again, haven't heard in a while. Uh, so I'm going to study up. Well, I look forward to reading your post. I can't wait. In fact, I think that's why I want the baby to be born so that you can write the analysis about the name. Um, (laughs) 
I mean, <laughs> that's yeah. where my interest is. Right. I, I appreciate that. And yes, for creativity's sake, I think logic says it might be a boy, but I, I kind of want a girl because people get more creative in those situations. Because it's entirely a- up to us, clearly. Uh, obviously, yeah. <laughs> Not only can it be changed now, <laughs> but also it's up to us. All right. Let's get on with our show. Um, Are you ready to, though? Because, you know, the only reason we're able to head into this topic is uh, because it allows us to keep talking about the episode of TV we've been talking about for days now. Well, you know, this is the thing, and I keep writing about this and talking about this with everybody. I think that we're at the precipice of something that's going extinct, which is monoculture. This past weekend saw two pop culture events that most people were aware of. That would be the Avengers and Game of Thrones and specifically the Battle of Winterfell. That episode is now called The Long Night, but um, we, prior and leading up to the airing of it, were calling it The Battle of Winterfell. And as many other people have said, probably this is not going to happen again for a long time, if ever. For people collectively, millions and millions to be watching and consuming a television show on a weekly basis, needing to watch it live, not PVRing and watching it later, not binging, but one episode live collectively at the same time. Right. Because there's too much. There's too much yes. out there in the world for us to be all watching and viewing the same thing, right? Even That's if right. there's an arbiter of culture that says, this is what you should watch, they're so... There's no time. And yeah. Yeah. So not to sound melodramatic, but being on the precipice of something that's not going to happen again, it adds to it. There's some excitement. And I, I'm relishing having to wait six days before the next. That you we are? get a Is yeah. that true? Like you're, you're relishing having to wait? Why? Because I fucking love it. Why? Because you get to talk with people about it or because it's just like that sort of edging phenomenon? Yeah. It's like prolonging, like it's like keeping your orgasm at bay. Edging. Yeah. Is yeah. that what it's called? Yeah. When you when you come right up to the edge and yeah. then back away. Yes. And then come up again to the edge. Fucking love it. Great. I love I talking can't about I it. I taught you something <laughs> about Perverted. sex that you didn't know. That's great. Um, I love it. I am in no rush. Sometimes I experience like to stay with sexual to stay with like sexual expressions. Sometimes over the last three weeks, I've experienced la petite mort, which is you know, right after the episode ends, I'm like, I'm not mad that it's over in that sense, but I wish Sunday hadn't come so quickly. Like you're bereft. Yeah. Right. And sometimes it happens like right before the show starts where it'll be 8.59 and I'll be like, fuck, it's 8.59? Why couldn't it be like 8 a.m.? I mean, I think that's, uh, I know you're going somewhere, but that's also just a great sort of idea in general, like that thing, that anticipation of a thing is better than the actual thing yeah. across the board is an understated phenomenon. And ugh, in particular with this episode, which I wasn't even that excited about because we've talked about this already on this show. You and I both, I call it talkie talk episodes. I like the talkie talkie episodes. I knew this wasn't going to be a talkie talkie episode. So I wasn't that like hard about it. Anyway, I think we can agree it wasn't a great episode. And one of the things that people were pissy about was that you couldn't see shit. (laughs) You couldn't see 
shit. Yes. Now, for lots of people, that's not exclusive to this episode, right? Like one of my favorite things in Roxanne Gay's Twitter feed, which is already one of my favorite Twitter feeds, is how she's constantly talking. She's like, it's the most expensive goddamn show on television. They can't afford lighting. Yeah. Um, which is really funny. Yep. Because uh, it's frequently dark and atmospheric and whatever. But I was surprised today to find out that it's not just like a choice. Well, and that's the thing. I will say since we had just name-checked Avengers like a few minutes ago, there is another superhero franchise, the DC franchise, which is like the Justice League and the whatever. The everybody else who wishes they were in the Marvel Universe. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that has always been my complaint about those movies is that they're so fucking dark. Like Zack Snyder has an aesthetic. Sarah's written about it on the site many, many times. Um, and she is, she is also kind of said, God, you can't see anything. I remember watching like the Batman, the Justice League movies, and I, I find it so hard to make out what's going on, that may be for a different reason. It might have been by choice in that respect. But to your point, this Game of Thrones thing, there was a very interesting article that you sent me from The Atlantic? No, it was from Slate. Okay. Um, And it is very interesting. And the way that I found it uh, on my Twitter feed was that people were bitching about the darkness and how poorly lit the episode was. And... Then Lexi Alexander, who we've mentioned on the show before, yep. who is a director and uh, cinematographer DP and yeah. so forth, um, said, you can't talk like that. That's somebody's livelihood. Uh-huh. Uh, that's beautifully lit. The way you see it is a different story. Right. Right? So, and then linked to this article, which I thought was really interesting. It was. And not to, like, be all up our own asses, but we, we work in this business, so we our understanding of like how things are lit and processed is like we have some experience, but this surprised me. Like I learned things from this article and it's not a long article. It is very technical though. It is very technical and it's also outside of our wheelhouse as people who have worked in television, right? Like lighting is, look, let's be honest, uh, going way back to TV school, Lighting is one of those things that's not that sexy, but God, it makes a difference. Oh my God. You, it makes a difference on your own face. Yeah. It makes a difference on the screen. It makes a difference for the viewing experience. Um, when I've done like interviews at home, when I'm self-lighting myself, I'm sort of mentally imagining that one of our camera guys that's a good friend of ours is there sort of, what would they say? Throw some shit behind it. Anyway. But that's not, like, a lack of lighting or a lack of choices on the DP's part, on the cinematographer's part, is apparently not why we all had problems last night. No, and they, listen, I don't think we need to get into the nitty-gritty explanation. I, um, the tech part of it, to me, like, go and read the article. We'll link to it in the show notes. But in short, the reason why the lighting was so, quote, bad to you is because of the way that the episode is delivered. It's not the way it's shot. It's the way that the episode gets serviced. Blew my mind. Yes. Blew my mind. So the episode gets shot. It looks great. But what happens is that they have to futz with it. They have to compress it. 
They have to change dimensions to be able to send it through. Just imagine sending the episode through wires and different patches of information technology to be able to get it through your cable service or your streaming provider onto whatever device or television you're working with. Right. And then understand that, again, it's Game of Thrones, so they have all the money in the world, right? Yeah. So they have the most sophisticated equipment known to man, and that yeah. would extend to the most sophisticated edit suites and color correction and whatever. How old's your TV? 10 years? Like, it isn't necessarily set up to receive yeah. all that goodness, Right. But even if your television is new, like I'm pretty sure our TV is less than, actually, no, you're right. I watched on the upstairs TV and our upstairs TV is probably close to 10 years old. Right. It's a flat screen. Sure. But it's like, you know, five models ago. Right. And even if it wasn't, um, to your point, like watching it on a TV is, you know, you're compressing it literally through cables and telephone wires and all those things. I did see something that said you were liable to have a better experience if you watched on streaming rather than on cable because of the, like, inherent infrastructure processes in that. Like, if you were watching on your tablet with the lights off, apparently it was better. Right. But the bottom line is… They this this article was a defense of the filmmakers and the production that it was well lit. It's more of a reality of how we're all receiving and consuming things. Which then begs a question, right? Like there's an example, I think, in this article that says that when uh you know, when sound engineers are Oh, I fucking love this example. It was great, right? Yeah. It says here there's a tradition in the music industry of taking the final mix of a recording and testing it out on a car stereo to see what the beautiful music playing out of the expensive monitor speakers in the studio sounds like when it's filtered through crappy car speakers competing with engine noise. And the reason audio engineers do this is not because they love the way music sounds in a 1989 Honda Civic. It's because they have no control over the listening environment where their work will eventually be heard. Yep. So that's a good example, and that was really cool, but that kind of raises the question of whether or not the people making Game of Thrones did that, whether they watched the show on a seven-year-old shitty TV, Yeah, you know, maybe not in total darkness or whatever. I don't know. It, like, does it matter on some level what the intent was? If the product, if the product didn't deliver. Well, you know, I talked about this with Kathleen. We were together just today and we had a long drive to go somewhere. And so we were obviously debriefing on Avengers and on Game of Thrones. And she made a really great point. And she was like, no matter what the intent or the tech or lack of tech was for the episode being so dark where so many people couldn't see it, she's like, I imagine how frustrating it might be for an actor. So you have done, you know, they have gone to great lengths to tell us how long it took to shoot this episode, right? Just, I got to talk about that because it's crazy. Yeah. This episode took 55 days. Yeah. Now, Game of Thrones is not a normal show, but you know how long it takes to shoot a normal hour of television? Six days? Eight. Eight. Eight days. Like eight eight or 55. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, so again, 
they keep talking about how long this episode took to shoot, let alone like post, right? But how long it took to shoot. And so they were out there in the cold. We've also heard a lot about the cold. They were out there um, practicing their moves, choreographing the fight sequences. And of course, like with their facial expressions, they're actors, right? And a lot of Game of Thrones, this is why we love the show, especially in the talky-talky bit, is that their facial expressions sometimes tell us eight pages of dialogue. Right. They telegraph what we need to know. Everything. So as an actor, to Kathleen's point, she was like, shit, I mean, I wonder how much we missed that they gave us. I mean, it's an interesting point. I The reason that the battle episodes of Game of Thrones are always my least favorite is precisely because we don't have those yep. moments, right? There are these beautiful aerial shots of people, but you don't get to see things really take place across the faces of people. Um, but I do think that this episode in particular, which is different from the previous battle episodes, really relied on us to like, be able to see what expressions they were giving each other. For example, two examples here. When um, Daenerys and Jon Snow are like fucking riding the dragons and you can't fucking see where they're going because they can't see because they're in some clouds and snow and whatnot and they're looking back at each other. Well, I'm impressed that you could tell that they were looking back at each other because I could barely tell if they were meant to be in the same frame. But I think that that's what I was looking for. I was like, are they communicating to each other with their eyes? Because they're in pursuit, I think, of the Night King on his fucking dragon. And so this is war. You're like, hey, am I going to bank right? Am I going to bank left on the dragon? Are you going to swoop up? Are, am I going to swoop down? Like, I wanted, I was looking for those things. Mm -hmm. Also, in the woods, when, like, Bran was sitting there and looking around, and when he came back from warging wherever he right. fucking went. Like right. that guy is, I'm, I, at this point, I'm so frustrated with him. I have rewatched that scene with what happens in that scene. I mean, like, I'm, do we have to worry about spoilers at this point? I don't think so. Okay. I, uh, look, I don't think anybody who cares yeah. uh, hasn't watched it. Okay, great. So after Arya does what she does, yeah. I wanted to see the look in his eyes, and right. I can't make it out. Well, I think it was a bad episode on a lot of levels. Yeah. And that's kind of what's making everybody crazy. It wasn't able to be seen, and sure, that doesn't necessarily mean any fault on the part of the DOP, mm -hmm. right? But we couldn't see it. It doesn't matter what the intent was, right? right. Um, and then also, I think... As a result, there were some storytelling things that weren't communicated that maybe we were supposed to know, or maybe because it was so foggy and they didn't see where they were, then we weren't supposed to see. You know, there are parts of that episode where it's clear that we're not supposed to know what's going on. There's a sequence early on, again, if you're going to be worried about being spoiled, I don't care. Um, <laughs> but when they send the first line of offense or defense out, right? right. With, their, with their torches yeah. and swords aflame. And then the flames just go out one by one right. silently, right? It's creepy as fuck. Yes. And you're not meant to see what's happening yeah. there. Like that was intentionally dark, right? Correct. So that you don't know. 
But then there were parts later on where you're like, does Daenerys not know what she's supposed to be doing or is she evading somebody that were very unclear? Well, to continue with that, I agree it was intentional for those lights to get snuffed out, mm-hmm. right? The fire to get snuffed out. Yeah. Secretly, like like yes, mythically. You yeah. don't know why. Right. But then fucking Jorah rides back. Do you remember? Like he goes out with the first group. The lights get snuffed out. He rides back. At that point, because his face was so dark and fucked up, okay, I thought I, he was a zombie. I said the same yes. thing. I right. said, oh, is he like he's blue eyed now? And I kept waiting yes. for the blue eyes, but apparently he wasn't. He no. Was back. So this is what I mean. Like you want, you need to see faces. Like he just rode back. Obviously, his expression is crazed because he was just attacked or something happened out there. But you don't know if it's crazed because he was a zombie or crazed because he's still a human and he's afraid. And it's an issue. <sighs> it's But it's particularly an issue because this was an episode. This is where all the shit wraps together, right? Like, this is where we talk about writing a lot, but all the best writing in the world is not going to help you in this situation. All the best acting in the world is not going to help you. This was an episode about geography. Yeah. Right? Where are the dead? Like, where are the zombies? Where's the Night King? Where is Bran? Like, where's that little courtyard off in the corner? We don't know. We know it's off in a corner somewhere, but where? Mm -hmm. And we're constantly worried about how close they are to Winterfell or how far they've encroached, but you can't tell. You can't, which I guess is what battle is supposed to be like. Yeah. Not to be all grade nine history, but I guess that's the point, right? Yeah. You don't know, you can't tell, you can't see. But contrast it with arguably the best scene in the episode when the crypt explodes as everybody knew that it would and the dead start to rise from the crypts and snatch yeah. the slow. Um, <laughs> right. Unarmed. Unarmed, Yes. <laughs> Um, I mean the, God, I mean the, like, not fast, obviously. Yeah. But there's that scene where Sansa and Tyrion are hiding behind a stone, a crypt, or whatever. Yeah. And they're terrified. And then they sort of wordlessly make the decision Mm -hmm. to go out there. Mm -hmm. And they wordlessly sort of say, fuck, I wish things had been different. Yeah. And... I love you. I don't love you like that, but I love you and I care about you and we've been through some stuff. Yep. And I fucking hope I see you on the other side. Yep. And they do great all scene. of that. It's a great scene. It's yep. wordless. Yeah. And that too is the strength of a director and an editor yep. where you stay on them for a long ass time. Yeah. And it's because you see their faces that you know what's going on. I Yeah. It just I, happens to involve two of our favorite characters. Well, there's that Our too. girl and our guy. Right. Now, you know, there's an argument that says, yeah, you don't know what's going on in a battle. You don't see what's happening. You can't tell who's beside you. It can't be like 82 minutes of it. 82 minutes on television. Yeah. Like four hours before Mm -hmm. the end of the most anticipated show known to men, right? Yeah. And yeah, it's a weird choice because, but then I also said to you, there's a reason they put this this early in the run. Yeah. Right? Like, it's not a run. It's only six episodes. Yeah. It's a mini series, but all the battling and all the whatever. And, and, you know, let's be honest, we didn't have the major kind of death that we were anticipating. Like, that's poor, a problem too, but not for this conversation. Poor went out for, for Leanna, but it's yeah. not who we were anticipating. No. 
But that's so that there are three 80-minute episodes left where the real shit goes down. Because the real shit is never about murdering anybody. It's yeah. never about the battles. It's about the outwitting and and bantering that yeah. takes place before somebody takes the Iron Throne. But I think what we're trying to get at with the tech and knowing what you're working with and knowing how big this is and wanting to wanting people to experience it and also maybe doing not doing the filmmakers dirty should the network or should the whole team be be introducing processes like they do in the recording industry the example that you mentioned where sometimes they t- go and take it out into the car and and listen to it the way most people would be listening to it when the soundtrack, when the song is released. The writer of this piece in Slate suggests that very thing near the end. They say, isn't it time for broadcast networks and like streamers and whoever to start putting whatever the equivalent of that is in the recording industry, in the broadcast industry, something like that in place. Hate to do this again, but I have to go back to our um, benevolent God, Beyonce, where I do think Beyonce is one of those artists who puts a song together and asks for it to be listened to from your device through your sound-canceling earphones and then asks someone to play it in a club or mimicking sort of a club environment and then in a car. I do think that Beyonce goes to those lengths. We already know the lengths she goes to to produce a two-hour show, um, that eventually is turned into a documentary. So why aren't more people making sure that the visual experience is the way the filmmakers intended it to be? Well, you know, it's ironic that you reference Beyonce because I think that's quite apt here. Beyonce has carte blanche, right? We don't know what the agreement was with Netflix, but they didn't wait to see a cut of the film Homecoming before they were like, yeah, sure, we'll put that up. Like, they were going to put up whatever she said, yeah. right? And the same is true of Game of Thrones and HBO. Like, mm-hmm. at this point, they have the ability to do whatever the hell they want to. And everybody understands what an undertaking and what a whatever. If any other show had turned in this episode, they would have been sent back to revise, recolor correct, like, right. to brighten it up, essentially. This is, I think, partly a a symptom of Game of Thrones syndrome, for lack of a better term, where they like they're not getting the pushback that a lesser show or a right. lesser artist uh, might get. Right. So the checks and balances that you're talking about, where Beyonce is concerned, are her own. Yeah. But these guys are making television at the absolute top of their game and probably don't answer to network notes or to, you know, the random tech guy in the corner. I don't know. Maybe it's the emperor has no clothes, right? Where, like, can you see the little sort of squeaky-voiced intern in the hallway being like, that looks pretty dark, sir. <laughs> like, that kid is not yeah. getting in there to to say that. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess, I mean, I don't know how much we have to worry about it beyond this. It's it's something for all of us as culture consumers to take note of. I thought it was a really good educational, informative piece about the behind the scenes technology that goes into like delivering 
what you're watching to you. Um, and I wonder if five in five years, whatever the thing to watch is going to be, if we're going to see that improvement. Well, I guess that might be the only other reason not to go way deep into like television education. But another reason might be that by and large, televisions are dying out, right? Yeah. Like that physical technology of that piece of furniture in your house that sits on a credenza is going away. Whatever the next big screens are that we buy, they will be smarter in some way. Like they will essentially be screen size iPads. And so arguably that tech is going to go away, cable is going away. And so it might be that people felt it wasn't worth undertaking because it's not long for this world. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, I mean, I feel very confident that next episode is not going to be dark. It's going to be bright and sunny. We saw some previews. <laughs> King's Landing is not dark. Never dark. No, it's really true. Um, and I, I know for sure we're going back to King's Landing for a little bit, at least. So yeah, we can put this away, but it's an interesting thing for all of us to think about and for you to think about. What I'm interested in is in four weeks' time when the final episode airs, three weeks' time, but plus a few days, and all the interviews come out. You know all the interviews with all the showrunners yes. after yeah. the shows have ended and there will be questions and what did this mean and what did that mean? I wonder whether they will address this. I Because I think a any sort of journalist worth their salt will ask the question. So they have three and a half weeks to come up with some spin about why it looked that way or whether or not they never intended it to be as dark as it was or what. Look out for that, everybody. Stand by. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So next, you sent me um, an interesting article. And the reason why I was interested in it at first is because I read the book. Um, Chaos Walking, Patrick Ness, I read the first book. Maybe I read the second. Um, I have to, it's a series. I have to say I gave up on it, not because it wasn't good, but because it was too hard. How do you mean hard? Like, like it dense? was hard on my soul. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. It's a dystopian. It, you know, it came out during the whole height of, you know, dystopian YA novels. It's one of the better ones. Very, very good. So in the vein of Hunger Games and Divergent and yeah, those. Exactly. Right. But it was for like without, listen, I'm going to give you like a quick descriptor of why I found it hard. Yeah. There's a dog. <laughs> okay. All yeah. right. I, yeah, I got it. So okay. had any of the other series involved a dog, you wouldn't have got through any no, of them. Okay. No. I gotcha. Anyway, so I know a little bit about the story. And when I was reading it and then later on learned that they were trying to adapt it and it took a while, I understood why it took a while. It's not easy. Right. It's, it's, I assume, I haven't read the book, but it's thick with mythology and yeah. 
effects and whatever. Exactly. Okay. So the article that you sent over was about the film adaptation of Chaos Walking, um, which apparently cost $100 million to make. It, they shot it in 2017. It stars Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley. Oh, not <laughs> Like… Not small people no. who both have their own blockbuster independent franchises. Right. And the second line of stars is Mads Mikkelsen and David Oyelowo. Like, yes. So losers here. <laughs> no. I mean, you're talking about Ray and Spider-Man. Right. And yet they have had to do some reshoots and like the first screenings uh, when they sent it to the studio were the quote used here was thought unreleasable by studio. Yeah. Uh, In fact, there's a bigger quote a little later on that says, an early cut of the film, quote, turned out so poorly it was deemed unreleasable by executives who watched initial cuts last year. Yeah. Unreleasable. Yes. And so now they are reshooting. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing that they point out, I mean… Yeah, let's not go to another thing yet. First of all, unreleasable. It's Tom Holland, Daisy Ridley. Like, we've all watched some shit on Netflix on a lazy (laughs) Sunday. How bad does it have to be to be unreleasable? Well, also, like, very rarely is anything unreleasable when you sink $100 now plus into it, right? Although that $100 can go fast when you're talking about… You know, all the photos that are included with this article involve the crew standing in the middle of a jungle. So the math of getting all those crews to whatever crazy location and standing in swamps and so forth, I can see how money would go fast, but not a hundred million fast. Yeah. So they're reshooting. They're hoping to get it out by 2020 now. So again, the film was pretty much done in 2017, but deemed unreleasable. So... They're aiming for three years after it was done. That is, I mean, listen, catastrophes and delays and problems on set are not uncommon. Like, uh, you know, we're not saying that every shoot goes perfectly and every production is smooth. No, of course not. Um, But there's catastrophes and then catastrophes. Yeah. I mean, do you remember Mad Max Fury Road, which when it came out was considered one of the best films of that year? It, it's a really, really good movie. It's a great movie. Um, but during production, there were all kinds of reports that they were also shooting in difficult locations. There were reports that they were running behind, that the studio had to send executives to get everything like back on board and to like fix everything. There were also stories that Charlize… Theron and Tom… Dogs. Likes dogs. (laughs) Hardy. Hardy. Yep. (laughs) Tom Hardy weren't getting along. Like, so lots of problems plaguing that too. However, it comes out and it's like everybody kind of forgets about the drama because the product is so good. And that's super Hollywood anyway. Yeah. You often say that thing, which is great, which you say, oh, the real life application is… And I think that is one of the ways in which Hollywood is the least like other industries, which is the end always justifies the means. Uh-huh. To completely negative effect sometimes in terms of what we've heard people put up with in the past, right? Uh, the end, meaning a successful film or whatever, justifies bad behavior, justifies giant overages in money, um, justifies almost anything. 
Uh, so yeah, you're right. Everybody forgets. Yeah. But that's what's interesting. When that movie was being shot, when Fury Road was being shot, yeah, the stories come out, oh, maybe people are disagreeing. Maybe there are arguments on set. And that you understand, right? Or if, you know, sometimes you hear a story, it ha- there hasn't been one in a little while, but sometimes you hear a story of, oh God, everybody on the film just went down with 48 hours of food poisoning mm-hmm. because everybody's eating the same catered food. So if the food is bad, yeah. um, then everybody's down for the count yeah. or whatever. Or sometimes there are situations like in The Hate You Give where they had to reshoot scenes because of something they learned about a performer. Right. Right? Yes. So those are sort of the three situations. There's personality conflicts. There's acts of God in terms of weather or… Illness. Yes. Um, and then there's a, a shooting issue. Reshoots yeah. for yeah. whatever given reason. We call that HR. Right. Good. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Call that, call that HR. That's great. This… It's not clear in this article… What, if any, of those things is the problem here? I mean, some one thing comes out. There's one thing. So, first of all, uh, Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley, as you said, like massive, massive stars, couldn't be bigger. One very generous thing I could say is that if they needed to go back for reshoots, those two are both phenomenally busy. Yep. So it can be hard to get them both in the same place at the same time, to get their franchises to line up so they can do this movie, right? Yep. Fine. Um, another thing that this article says is that there have been six writers on board this movie. Now, they don't specify whether or not they are working together or rewriting each other, but I'm just going to say six writers is never a great sign. Mm -hmm. Um, even if you take out, um, Ness, whose first name, the actual author of the books, Patrick, Patrick Ness, even if you take him out as having written only the story, that's still five writers. And even in the best scenario, that means, even if you assume two of them are writing teams, that still means that they've had two writing teams fired and moved on. Mm -hmm. It's not good news. No. And then there's the, yeah, underlying tone in the rest of the article. Yeah. Which is? Which is the director, Doug Lyman. So Doug Lyman is, you know, you, me, we have watched many of Doug Lyman's movies. He has done Edge of Tomorrow, mm-hmm. starring Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. Very good movie. Yep. People really were surprised by that movie. I, it holds up. It's very entertaining. He uh, did Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Mm-hmm. I love that movie. Love that movie. Um, and we've never t- we don't talk enough about that movie, you and I specifically. But anyway, I love that movie. You obviously love that movie. I love that. It's movie. a movie about work. That's why we love the movie. It's a great movie. Anyway, um, so like an experienced director, or at least a director who has had hits. Oh, definitely. And it's funny because you were reading some of his credits from that article, and I was you know listening to you and thinking, oh, maybe she's gonna say, um. Born Identity next, because that's uh, another one. But to me, uh, Doug Lyman will always be Go. Yeah. The movie Go uh, was where I first sort of knew about him. Anyway, he's done a bunch of movies, like a bunch. And yet they say, and I quote from this piece. And Swingers. Sorry, go ahead. And Swingers. uh, They quote from this piece, 
quote, Lyman is notorious for his chaotic style of directing, which has seen many of his movies go way over budget. Then they list the examples. Born had to go extensive reshoots. Um, and then definitely Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Uh, they called him a, a self and semi-managed tornado <laughs> and his methods effective chaos. Other examples. Anyway, whatever. I mean, again, apparently this is his style. His style is to go over budget and be kind of disorganized, but somehow to bring back what you said earlier, the ends justify the means. So this is what's happening on Chaos Walking, and they're hoping in 2020 the ends justify the means. I wonder if he's going to come up against his first splat or a splat. I I wonder too, um, because it's it's got to be great to justify the means, right? And, you know, it's interesting because in this article, uh, the photos that I'm referencing are actually from Tom Holland's Instagram. And in one of them, he references an hour and a half in and we already have Doug Cam showing the director carrying a camera, which... <laughs> If you boil that down, means an hour and a half in, uh-huh. and the director has already ripped the camera away from the camera guy and gone, yeah. I'll do it. Give yeah. it to me. The DP is standing out of shot, like out of frame now. Right. Or one of the operators. Yeah. yeah for sure. I, like, I don't know, but yes, I do. Like, <laughs> I've been on enough sets to know what that is. And by the way, that never happens. Like, yeah. a director does not do that. So, that's not great. And then I think about the fact that they shot the original in 2017 Mm -hmm. when Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley were different, like, quantities than they are now. So they know better maybe now. They know more about how directors should behave and what you do and don't put up with. And it it would be a very interesting time on that set right now. Well, listen, and… I'm sure you all are expecting it, but here we go, or here I go. We've talked a lot in this, we've talked a lot on this show about opportunities given to whom and to what people. Ava DuVernay had a $100 million budget for A Wrinkle in Time, made all kinds of headlines at the time, right? Like biggest budget for either it was like a female filmmaker or a, a black a black filmmaker. Um, and... She talked about the fact that, that, yeah, that was a lot of pressure and how much time she had to work to convince people that she could manage it. If she had gone a fucking dime over budget or been chaos walking… Or late or (laughs) handed in a cut that was unreleasable. Are you kidding me? Patty Jenkins, right, at the helm of Wonder Woman, also given a huge budget to work with, also given like… I don't know how many decades of pressure of like people reading the comics and waiting for a Wonder Woman movie delivered on time, good product, did well at the box office. But if she had had some delays that were either of her control or not of of her control, I mean, would she have gotten a crack at the sequel? Not a chance. Not a chance. You know they'd replace directors at the drop of a hat even when they don't do anything wrong. So they had to be perfect. They had to be perfect. And what kills me is he gets so many chances to be perfect. I know! He gets all these chances. And, and the studio, the they can't afford not to have it 
be a hit. Does that make sense? Like we've all thought about movies that are dumped in like, think about a movie that's dumped in like the second week of August, right? Uh, Whether it's releasable or not, they put it out there on 25 screens with no promotion. It comes and goes. And then you look at somebody's IMDb and you're like, oh, they did that? I had no idea. Yeah. The studio can't afford to have this not be a hit because they've put so much money into it and because these are two megastars. They have to release it. But the projects that, again, I keep coming back to the stars because it makes a difference. And this is where celebrity and business kind of meet. The projects that Daisy Ridley and Tom Holland are known for are not just big. They are of such high quality, right? They're of such massive, massive quality that you can't release something that is less than spectacular and expect to live the day. Like putting out something where they were you know, ill-treated, mm-hmm. and I don't mean personally, but I mean ill-treated by the filmmaking experience, is almost worse than not making the movie at all, except you've already paid them their salary, so you yeah. better release something good. Well, I also want to talk about, like, the community that rallies around to support one person and maybe hang somebody else out to dry. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so you know what I'm getting at here, Right. So he's over oh, budget. I know, but I want you to say it. I want everybody to know. He's chaos walking, or he's literally <laughs> well, chaos walking. He's over budget. They need reshoots. It's a mess. They don't know what they're doing day to day. He's ripping cameras out of like the people's hands who usually hold the cameras. But there's probably like eight executives and producers on set who are like, let's just give him what he needs to succeed. Yep. Just just get it done and it's yeah. fine. And he's difficult, but it'll be there. And they have it to back it up. Those films that you listed just now, they're not dogs. No. Like everybody loved Born Identity and Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Edge of Tomorrow. Those are like films people like. And the thing is, we're not pulling this supposition out of our asses. We're getting it from this piece when they say, oh, previously, like, you know, the producers on Born or whatever said that he was like a self blah, 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 and that it was a mess. But there's a but there, but it worked. So they do what they can to see if he can replicate his, quote, genius from the previous time. But who gets also the opportunity to have people rallying around them for support? Like, again, if a Patty Jenkins or an Ava DuVernay is if they they weren't, but if they were floundering, could they have counted on the same amount of excuse-making, rationalizations, and, you know, people scrambling to cover up their mistakes that these kinds of directors get? Well, look, as we learned from the college admission scandal, if you have unlimited time and unlimited money, anybody can be a star, Right. Anybody can turn in a perfect movie with unlimited budget, unlimited support, unlimited free passes. Yeah, of course it's a different playing field. Of course Patty Jenkins would not be allowed to make these kinds of mistakes. And look, sometimes reshoots happen. Sometimes they just do. Sometimes everybody in the room says, you know what, let's go back out there. And that's Uh not held against that director. But as you point out, it's a pattern. Yeah. I want to point out something else that's really interesting, and that is where this article is. 
the article that we're referencing, which we will link to as always, is a yahoo.uk article. And it cites, uh, its source is a Wall Street Journal article, um, which makes sense in terms of, you know, funds and follow-ups and reshoots and that, like, it makes sense from a fiscal story point of view. Right. And the Wall Street Journal article was not necessarily about chaos walking the film. It was about Lionsgate. Right. Who's the studio who's releasing it. That's right. Here's where it's not. All over Variety, all over Deadline, the actual trade papers where, you know, news like this comes up. And there's two kind of arguments there. One is to say, well, a director doing reshoots is not news. And the other is to kind of go, hmm, interesting. Like if this were, to your point, right? If this were a story about a female director fucking up somebody's beloved franchise and never working again as a result, it would be all over every outlet you can think of, up to and including Reddit, and we'd still be hearing about it 10 months later. I love that point. I love that point, that why isn't it in the trade papers? Like, this, this is a story that should should be in the trades. On, look, on some level, it's not, because as in and of itself, a film doing reshoots is not news, as I say. Yeah. But when combined with the references to the way that Lyman directs, and there are many sources cited, including, I think, Variety from a dozen years ago, and when combined with, you know, the fact that there are bajillion writers and so forth, this is, yeah, the film's name couldn't be more accurate. It begins to look like chaos filming, to make a cliche. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the fact that it's not a story is because people unconsciously or not who are making the decisions at those trade papers are going, well, yeah, but he's having a hard time. He's whatever. It is what it is. It blah, blah, blah otherwise known as, that's bullshit. Or at minimum, and look, I'll probably love this movie and it'll be great. And I've been a fan of Doug Lyman movies, but it is a double standard at minimum. Mm -hmm. And I paused there because I was trying to think of something better than double standard. Triple standard? I don't know. Here's the real life application. This is something- (laughs) I love that no matter what we're talking, we could be talking about like- the way that they made the energy shoot out of Captain Marvel's hands, and you'd go, here's the real-life application. Here's the real-life application, and maybe it's a stretch, but it's something that I've been thinking about and really struggling with. Across all industries, as we know, budgets are shrinking. Yeah. Budgets are shrinking no matter where you work. You have to do the same with less resources. Mm -hmm. And many people, because you are out there, if you're listening, you're out there and you're like given, you're killing it, right? You take pride in your work. You respect your work. You respect the process. And so people are making do with less and maintaining the standard. Right. And sometimes, no, oftentimes what happens is that when you make do with less and you maintain the standard, the bosses say, great, what a good idea we had to save money. Yes, of course. Yes. Right? So you don't need extra money because right. you're doing great. See, we told you that you could do this. That's you right. You were so worried, but you did it just fine with half the budget. It sets up a precedent. It means you can't get better or it, it means you can't invest in finding better people, improving, in sending people to workshops, all of that. But 
people are also observing that the fuck-ups, the ones who the… What is that expression, Duanna? The greasy wheel, blah, blah, oh, blah. Oh, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. They do get more resources. Oh, he just can't do it. He needs a little extra support. So there is a sense out there, and I've talked to enough people to know this, there's a sense out there that the good workers, the people who deliver great work, the Avas of the real world application and the patties, they're like, fuck, you know, I can't, I refuse to let a product out there look any less than my best. So I will make do with like what, what they give me. Because I have pride in my work and it becomes like the snake eating its own tail. Is that the right way to use that expression? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It becomes like a, a cycle, a cycle of I don't, wanna, I don't want to look bad because I have standards, so I'll just take what they give me and yet it means I'm working harder with less. Right. But this is where, and look, you have carefully phrased what you just said. Um, nobody is overtly saying this is a gender discussion, but this is where it becomes a gender discussion because if a man in that hypothetical office that I was picturing while you were talking says, I can't get it done on this budget level, he doesn't blame himself. He... Uh, and this is a hypothetical, literally a straw man, because I'm not talking about anybody in particular, right? But often what we find is that hard workers in general, but often women say, I'll do what I can with the resources given. I will make it work with what I have. And what that means is that they work late or that they take less of a salary or mm -hmm. whatever, and the difference is, and God knows I'm not blaming anybody, but you know where I'm going here. The difference is that often a dude says to the bosses, I can't get it done on this budget. I can't make it happen. And instead of them saying, wow, this guy's a dud. He's yeah. not a hard worker. They say, oh, well, he needs more resources. And that guy can do that because he doesn't feel like not doing the work is an expression of his character. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. And I, I, look, I'd love to talk about this and not make it a gender issue, but I feel as though we've seen it over and over again in our lives and also in Hollywood, right? That part of what it is to be a good girl in scenarios like this is to just take what you're given and say, I will make it work. No, I won't argue. No, I won't beg for more. I'll make it work on this budget. I'll do that or whatever. As opposed to somebody going, you know what? I need more time. I need more shoots. <laughs> Great accent. Whatever, whoever you were imitating there. I felt it. I really did. Like, I just was like, what It was would like I be? a throwback to like a 40s movie there. Yeah. Like, if I was in a boardroom in cargo <laughs> pants, how would I be talking? With a cigarette. Yeah. I need more time. But that's kind of what it comes down to, right? There's no guilt and shame here. I could be wrong. Maybe he went in with his tail between his legs in the first cut, but I bet you money that they called Doug Lyman or, you know, his team and said, this is unreleasable. And he said, if you want it to be releasable, I need more money and more time with Holland and Ridley and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right? Like that's the, the retort. And I just don't know what to say about that because, well, you know, I hear your point about people saying good work goes unacknowledged. 
And I'm also reminded of this phrase that I read in like a, a, a young woman's career book millions of years ago that says, after a while in your career, when you've been doing really well, you have to stop being a workhorse and start being a show pony. You have to stop being somebody who can get everything done on any budget, on any time crunch, and start being the person who is noisier about their work and about how they get it done. And that's where, you know, Ava DuVernay's $100 million budget kind of comes into play in terms of, I'm sure she was thrilled that those articles were out there because on the one hand, it's like, oh, it's such a big deal. On the other hand, it's like, yeah, I'm worth it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I don't know how you, I don't know how you fix that. I don't think we are able to offer solutions today on that, but like we love throwing it out to you. If that has been your experience and that is a bridge that you have crossed from workhorse to show pony, send us your notes. Let us read them. Let us read them out to other people. Yeah. And if you have pushed back on something like a budget crunch or a staffing crunch, um, I want to know how it went and and what the arguments were and who the person was in your office that, you know, was able to get through that crunch, whether it was you or somebody else, and whether you all talked shit about them at drinks afterwards. And if you haven't figured it out, we're with you. 100%. Meet you at the pub. And so... Our final topic this week is about something that you did at work this week. You had a celebrity interview. And, you know, we all know you. We know you've been doing celebrity interviews for some time, but this one felt different to you. I was surprised at how much it consumed you and has been. So tell me a little bit about why it was such a big deal. Well, I think I texted you immediately after and I said that was the interview of my career. Yeah, you did. So let's not be coy. Oh yeah, sorry. It's Sandra O. Oh. Right. And specifically, you sat down with Sandra O oh in the nation's capital in Ottawa mm-hmm. because she was receiving what honor? The National Arts Center Award. Right, which is a, a national honor. It's a very prestigious artist's award. And because it was happening in Ottawa, it was extra special to her because she grew up in Nepean, which is a town just outside of Ottawa. Right. So you were excited about this opportunity, yes? I was nervous. I was excited. Why were you nervous? I was really nervous about this one for a couple of reasons. First, because in past interviews I've seen with Sandra Oh, she's very, very thoughtful and she doesn't she doesn't seem like I don't know her well enough to be able to say this, but I love to me, I don't know her well enough because like <laughs> you might have said before, oh, I don't know her, but apparently <laughs> she doesn't seem like she suffers fools gladly. Right. Right. She's not a mean person. She's very nice, but she's not there to be nice to her. She's not there to go out of her way to be nice to you if she doesn't like the question. Fair enough. Right. Right. And I should say that, um, You know, you said that, and I'm not surprised, and I've seen, obviously, press with Sandra Oh, but I also think that that is, that's almost a province of an actor as opposed to a celebrity. Sure. Um, When there are people who, you know, have come of age doing interviews on, God, I don't know, Modern Family or something, they are... 
they're sort of primed to be happy about any question yeah. and do whatever. And people who have been working in relative, not obscurity, but yeah. who have been working for a long, long time without sort of that fame and, and flashbulb thing happening, they often are clear about what they want to say and they're more aware of when it's not yeah. going anywhere real. But that too is connected to me wanting to impress her. Right. Like I wanted to more than any other person I've talked to in a long time for in this kind of setting, I wanted her to like me. Most of the time I go into interviews and it is not a priority to make the person like me. Respect me? Sure. But Sandra was different. Sandra was different. Why? Well, because, um, you know, we've talked about Sandra O oh on the show. She's a trailblazer, recently named a pioneer, Time 100. Um, we've talked about how her work, you just said it, her work informs first rather than her celebrity. She's super thoughtful. She's so smart. She's really, really present no matter what she's doing. I think she is like a not to quote what the kids say, but she's a real one. And of course, the other reason that she's important to you, like I think we can go yes, ahead and Yes, there's point the it cultural out. element. She's an Asian woman in media and in culture, and I am as well. So there is uh, the whole, if you can't see it, you can't be it thing. Right. And that's what she's doing. She's being seen so that other people can be. And that with that example, like she's a, she's a little bit of a hero of mine. Right. So I'm just going to draw a line here that for somebody who is the first Asian woman to be named a Time 100 pioneer and trailblazer and to be the first Asian woman to be nominated, I think you said earlier, for an Emmy, right? In the outstanding drama lead category. Right. That you're thrilled it's a woman as tough and smart and articulate as she is, And right? complicated and, yeah, all those things. Right. Like, I, my point being, if it's going to be, obviously, I believe you hope, as I hope, that there are many, many more, that she doesn't have to be the first, only different. Yeah. But if she's going to be the first, mm -hmm. only different, it's glorious that she's Sandra Oh, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So did you prep differently? Yeah, I I think I, listen, I always prep, but in this case, I prepped more. Like instead of a 10, I went 15, like I roll, okay. What, sorry, do you mean, <laughs> uh, you mean a 15 out of 10? Is that what you're trying yeah. to say? Yeah. Okay, okay, sports, 110%, okay. So, but also I prepped in a way that would allow me to, this is so Tai Chi, have you heard the principles of Tai Chi? So No. <laughs> one of the main principles of Tai Chi is that you're supposed to know it so well, your moves, that at the point of using them, you forget. Okay. I mean, I will say, uh, okay. So my, my philosophy, although I didn't label it that last week when I was prepping, is I wanted to go Tai Chi on this, which was I'm a very good memorizer. I memorize always, almost always to memorize so that I can recite back like to, you know, word for word. 
I didn't memorize to memorize that this time. I memorized to forget. Um, you know, it's uh, this doesn't necessarily lend itself to our cultural conversation, but you will be proud of me anyway. I have always heard that described as the divine inspiration of the NBA, which means simultaneously remembering and forgetting everything you've ever known. The National Basketball Association? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea being that, like… Are you giving me… <laughs> yeah, I fully am giving you a sports analogy. Yeah. Okay. The idea being that if you are Steph Curry or whoever, right, and you're going for… An, Who are you right now? Wait for it. <laughs> if you're going for, like, a crazy shot, that you have to remember everything you've ever known and all those millions of practice shots that you've taken in baskets and yeah. also forget all of it because mm-hmm. you need to be in the moment and it's different every time and so forth. Yeah. The Tai Chi or the divine inspiration of the NBA. Okay. Yeah. And I don't, I don't always do that. Like, for example, you know, I've memorized an 18 minute speech word to word before. Yep. Um, and I didn't memorize my TED talk to forget it. I memorized it to memorize it. Right. But also again, speaking now as a producer, Memorizing to memorize is often a real problem in interviews. And anybody who's listening has heard it and seen it. When you interview me and say, what did you like most about this job? And I say, oh, what I liked most was the hot affair I had with my (laughs) co-star. And you say, what do you think your character would say about the blah, blah, blah? Yeah. That's a problem with memorization, right? That's not reacting and not listening in the moment. So that's kind of what you're getting at. Yeah. I'm… Listen… Most of my interviews are so time constrained. We're at a junket. It's five minutes. I got to get off these three questions. Like I need them to take them home so that we can cut the story. So you have to get those in. So I know I'm going to have to. Now, if the, I will react to an answer. Like I just had an affair, of course. But I did make a much more conscious effort to like let shit flow. And to have a conversation. That's right. So how'd it go? Amazing, I think. No, it was amazing. Okay, so I want you to tell me, so you get in, uh, so when you get to an interview, um, it doesn't start right away. Like the awkwardness of an interview is that you get there and you arrive probably before she does Mm -hmm. and then she walks in and she has people with her or whatever and everybody says hi and then there's sort of that awkward period where everybody's getting mic'd up and you sort of want to talk and break the ice but you don't want to get too talky because the cameras aren't rolling. So what do you do in that moment? Well, I I love that you're bringing this up because I I want to sort of set that stage for people listening because what happens is that in a real-life conversation, someone walks in and you're like, hey, how's it going? And you don't have to worry about losing the good shit and not capturing it on camera. That's right. So you don't want to get too familiar and risk her saying something that doesn't get captured on camera, but you also want to establish a rapport. She sits down, she gets mic'd up. So there's a very awkward thing that happens. Guys, like, I'm just telling you right now, it's so weird where our tech people are micing up the guest. And going as fast as they humanly can. They all get it. They know what this is. Yeah. But everybody in the room is… it's kind of the opposite of edging, if yeah. you will. It's wondering if it's ever going to happen. That's right. And then you don't want to sit there in silence while somebody she doesn't know is sticking a microphone into her lapel. So um, Her lapel at best. Like, yeah. Not for nothing. We didn't intend to do this, but 
I think we may have talked about this, but one of the hilarious things about audio and getting mic'd is that often the microphone is going on your bra strap or up your dress uh-huh. or wherever. It is always awkward. And then there's some person that the celebrity doesn't know going, let me just get your flyaways and patting down her hair. Yep. And it's all a bit, it's, it's yeah. a bit of suspended animation. And you're sitting there and they're sitting there and you're kind of talking around the people fluttering around her. But it's all super, super surface. It's the way you might talk to somebody on a train. Like, yeah. oh, look outside. It's yeah. trying to rain. Oh, weird. Yeah. But then you're on the clock. So as soon as like every, the flyaways are smooth and the mic is set up and the lipstick is done, you need to go. So you need to go from like the superficial to like, okay, are you ready? Three, two, one, boom. And that boom is, okay, instant rapport, instant best friends or adversaries or whatever it's going to be. That's right. So So that happens. We go right into it. Hey, welcome home. Congratulations. And she kind of just set the tone in the sense where she was, she was like, yeah, this is home. And she turned around and she pointed to like a corner on the street behind us. And she was like, I used to take the whatever bus (laughs) to that corner with my friends and hang out. So already she was relaxing me. Mm -hmm. But then 30 seconds later, she had shared all these memories and the mic cacks out. Right. Um, And her mic has to get replaced. Right. Which means that your producer interrupts and says, sorry, sorry. And, you know, you're just about to get somewhere. Yeah. And And, you have to reset. And everybody's trying their best not to shoot dagger eyes at anybody else. Yes. So that happens. mm -hmm. She's a pro. Obviously, she lives on sets, so she handles it like a pro. And then we pick up where we were. But in that moment, I was like, fuck. You know, you don't want to lose your rhythm. No. Look, it's a lot like dating. It's a lot like a first date. Most are yeah. fine. Some are atrocious. Yep. And then there's the occasional first date where it's amazing. Yeah. And the last thing you want to do, you know, when you're on a first date and it's amazing and yeah. all of a sudden the waiter is a giant intrusion, Yeah, it's kind of like that. Yeah. If the mic dies, you're like, why? Yeah. We're doing a thing here in a highly artificial circumstance. I had five cue cards of questions and each cue card had six questions. Mm-hmm. So that's 30 for those of us doing the math. And I will tell you, I didn't have to look at them once. But when I go back to them now, having read the transcript, I take them all off. In one way or another. In one way or another, yes. Because she was answering them in the conversation. That's right. We got there. Right. And you know that as you're asking, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is the other sort of skill of interviewing is yeah. going, oh, that's that answer to that question. Yeah. So if you're listening, then you don't ask that and then go, that's oh, right. I guess you kind of answered that. But I'm also constantly… I'm. Like, I would be typically constantly thinking about it. Like, I would be re-strategizing. I would be listening while in the back of my head, strategizing if I should move question 13 up to 8 and whatnot. This time, I didn't. Right. Like, it was not conscious. It just ended up happening that way. Because the conversation was going so well. It was. And I also threw in some new things. Uh, You know, the question about… I had asked her about coming back to Ottawa and getting a key to the city. And it was just supposed to be like, hey, how do all these awards stack up against each other? Which is fine. Yeah. But when she started pointing out like street corners that she used to hang out on, 
I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to throw that one out, but I'm going to get it in a different way. And so I said to her, hey, and I gave her the Drake analogy. Drake is essentially like the unofficial mayor of Toronto. Right. And so I was like, you know how Drake is the sixth god and, you know, the ambassador of Toronto was like, are you the 613 god? That's Ottawa's area code. Yeah. Um, and she loved that. Right. Like, but that came in the moment on the fly. Right. And so is there a, is there a sense, if you're interviewing a celebrity, there are, again, there are interviews that go well, there are interviews that go not so well, and then there are some that go great. Yeah. Um, did you have a sense while this was going great did you feel as though we're almost sort of superseding our roles? We're no longer interviewer and subject, but we're becoming like buds, bros? Yeah, but I'm like scared to say that because it would be like, I don't want to be presumptive, but it's, you're right. It ceased to be, this is an interview and this is just like two people talking about a TV show. Having a conversation. Yeah. The meat of the meat of the conversation about Killing Eve, of course, which is like why we were there, mm -hmm. right? Hit show. She's promoting it. We air it on our network. Um, the, the meat of the conversation about Killing Eve was the way you and I talk about shows. Right. Like this scene. Did you, did you break it down this way? This is how I saw this scene. So we, we, we were able to get a little bit or I was able to get a little bit nerdy, like I was a TV watcher with her. Mm -hmm. And, of course, uh, you're somebody else too. I know you had sort of a personal angle even to talk about killing Eve with her, but, you know, I wonder, obviously part of the conversation is that she's a Canadian Asian woman in the media who's being interviewed by a Canadian Asian woman in the media. Yeah. And as much as I'm sure that was great for you and that's a big deal for you. I also wonder how often that happens. If there's a a level of extra comfort that she's like, oh, here's my my person. We have so much that yeah. we my point being, I don't know if you're imagining a kinship. Maybe it's just there because yeah. she doesn't get to bro down with somebody the way she was. Well, and that kind of thing came up because I specifically asked her about that approach to her character. Y'all, like if for people who are watching Killing Eve or who know Killing Eve, Eve is an Asian woman with no Asian background. Like in season one, there is no explanation about why this Asian woman with a non-British accent is living in London. Which uh, I just want to sidebar and say that I love that because it just assumes we're smart. It just assumes viewers, yeah. not because there's a secret that you're supposed to catch on to, but yeah. it's not germane to the conversation, no. which is an assassin is killing off That's people right. in your life. And Have even fun. her last, her character's last name doesn't give you any hints about that. No. Her, character last, her character's last name is Palastri, her right. husband's last name. Right. So you don't know if she is Asian by Korean, yep. Asian by Chinese, mm -hmm. Asian by Japanese, Asian by Filipino. Like, you don't know. No. And my assumption uh, in the first season was, uh, is she perhaps Asian by... Uh, Adoption, like to yeah. a North American family, we don't know. Yeah. Now, I will say, maybe this is a bit controversial, but the question about that is different coming from me than it is about someone who is not of Asian or a, like, person of color extraction. Of course. 
course it is. Of course it is. Well, no, and I would say specifically of Asian extraction because I think there's a, yeah, there's a reason that you, the interviewer, Mm -hmm. want to know. Yeah. Um, in a different way than it's like, yeah, so what's Eve's deal anyway? Well, but I think the question, sorry, just yeah. to, not to cut you off, but I think it's not just that the question is different coming from you. I think, I don't think anybody else would ask. And I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass. I'm trying to say, I don't think that that part of the conversation enters into the heads of a lot of the viewers. I think for a lot of people, it's like, oh, yeah, Sandra O oh is playing this role. Right. Period. The end. Well, Not what is the character backstory of how this woman came to be in London with MI5, et cetera. Maybe it's, it's that or maybe on the flip side, it's not that the question isn't asked. It's that the question has been asked and she knows that's our shorthand. She knows it's been asked of me. And the question is, being an Asian woman who was born in Canada, me and her, how many times have we been asked, hey, where are you from? But then from there, she does say, yeah, on the one hand, it's refreshing not to have an explainer for the cultural background of my character. But on the other hand, it's been very important for her to subtly shape her character so that there are many Korean elements to Eve that perhaps the casual viewer doesn't recognize. And she cited an example. When she plays Eve or when she plays any character, she always enters Eve's apartment and then kicks off her shoes. In TV, like because TV is, you know, when you're doing a scene, a lot of the time it's economy of time, right? You walk in the door and you just go to the kitchen and you start having a conversation because you need to get to the content the meat of the narrative. Well, interestingly, not to be all tech at you, but we actually call it shoe leather. If there's a, a scene where somebody comes in, drops their keys, like sorts through the mail, unless that's sort of atmospheric, you call it shoe leather, i.e. we're wasting too much shoe leather getting from here to there. Yeah. Physically. So what she does is she's like, you might not see the shot of me taking off my shoes, but I also... But I always motion, as soon as I walk into Eve's apartment, I motion and I shuffle my feet because in no Asian household do you walk in the door with your shoes on. Right. She's like, these are just, and she's like, it doesn't matter to the story. It probably doesn't even matter to the character as a whole. It's just that these are the subtle ways that I'm imbuing my character with her cultural background. It's very very nuanced. It speaks to the kind of artist she is and human being she is, but getting getting from that part of the conversation to the other part of the conversation was so organic, and it's because I think she recognized that I come from a place where I would have had those questions come up for me. So I think what's interesting about listening to you is that when we discussed this and, and you know, we're talking about I said, well, what made this interview so amazing? You've interviewed many, many celebrities. And what I'm hearing as we're talking is that because of your shared experience and because of your shared background, you kind of jumped over all the 101 questions, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. even the 301. Everything that you were talking about, even though it's just a straight up interview that you both know is going to be on 
uh, e-talk and chopped up into small parts and whatever is has a deeper layer of understanding because you understand each other. Yeah. And I, I really, as you said, it's being chopped up for e-talk, but it will air in its entirety on Bravo, like as a half hour special. And that to me is a showcase of what that whole conversation felt like top to tail. But I think too, this is an example of why, there's two examples here. Um, This is an example of why it matters for people to be interviewed by people who are not just sort of the the standard. This is, we've had Brie Larson saying she wants to be interviewed by more people who are diverse in many different ways and so forth. And the reason is not just equality. The reason is not just representation. It's because tonally and content-wise, there are entirely different conversations that come mm-hmm. and that appear outside of of the, the norm. And because she doesn't have to say to you, well, so the thing is, actually in Asian homes, we don't mm-hmm. actually wear our shoes in the house. Yeah. She said to you like, you know, anyway, it like shoes, obviously. Yeah. Um, and you move on. And when there is that, here we go, specificity yeah. between the two of you, I haven't seen the tape, but I don't doubt that it's easy to follow because the specificity is universal because you can see two people vibing and understand what's there, even if that's not my lived experience. Except it is because Canadians take off their shoes also, but that's a different (laughs) conversation. Yeah. And I think to, um, to, yeah, link it back to all thematically what we've been talking about this season is that, is the difference the coverage can make. So ultimately, this is in service of everybody wants to get a message out there, right? Mm -hmm. She's there because… She's promoting a show. Mm-hmm. The best way to do it is to, for her to be able to talk about it passionately, consider it like passionately, thoughtfully. And I think that she did that with me, sitting across from me. Same goes for Brie Larson. She asked for more inclusion in the people she was talking to. And that press tour went fucking great. Well, look, at, I mean, Captain Marvel was a good movie and it did a lot of money because there was a lot of anticipation. But she killed the press tour too. Right. But arguably, because you can say different things and get to different places when the people asking the questions aren't the same people all the time, which begets the questions aren't all the same questions all the time. Yeah. All right. So now I'm going to turn it back on you. What's the real world application? Well, how are you going to take this experience and take it to uh, an interview that perhaps you are uh, if not less excited about, that there's less sort of uh, common ground. Or if you are going to interview, like, I don't know, a wrestler. Something. Well, I'm going to throw it back to you. Um, because, oh, okay. <laughs> no, because in your book about names, you talked about names and their individuality and how some people choose them or pick them or change them. For themselves, you mean. For themselves. Yeah. And the identity that names can carry. Yeah. And I think a lot of what you do in your work around names is, like, in the most simplistic terms, is start to own who you are and what your name represents. Mm -hmm. And 
again, I think we have been trying to encourage people to like bring your own individuality into your meetings, into your interviews, into your idea pitches. In the past, there has been a lot of like conforming, right? This is the best way to do it. Here's how we do things. Yeah. And uh, if I clock where you're going, um, not only is this the best way to do things and whatnot, but knock all the individual edges off yourself. That's right. And maybe it goes back to junior high school, uh, because I always say, you know, embrace your nerd, Mm -hmm. but it takes decades of unlearning yeah. to to go back to that nerd who you shoved into the metaphorical locker in That's grade right. seven. I, you know, you were with me at the very beginning of me being like at least on camera mm-hmm. as an entertainment reporter. Mm-hmm. And I will say that probably the first half of my television career, I was like wearing clothes and like wearing um, approaches that I thought were the standard in TV. Like, I wore bandage dresses. I didn't right. like them. And this is the best analogy that I can give. I know where you're going. Yeah, I wore bandage dresses. I didn't like them. They were trendy at the time, and everybody on TV, every woman on TV was wearing a bandage dress. Right. And I was like, fine, I'll wear a bandage dress. It was bodycon, hated it, didn't think it looked good, but I did it anyway. I would never wear a bandage dress today. Right. I'm just saying, like, I guess to answer your question figure out what your bandage dress is, which is what you are not, and try to have, and it takes a while and it takes experience, but like, don't wear the bandage dress. Right. But I would go further and suggest, uh, and to kind of link it up with names, which I appreciate, um, I would suggest that you know, you've you've had a, a great television career thus far and everything, but I would challenge you to look back and see if you see, because I think what you're saying basically is the sooner I started being myself, and now I'm putting words in your mouth, the better it got. Maybe it got better for you, your experience, but I wonder if you would also say that your work feels better. It does. Yeah. Right? That you think you do a better job. And I think there are still things, that there are still equivalents of the bandage dress that I'm still doing, that I'm still working on. Sure. Everybody is. I don't know that that's ever going to change, but the big things are coming, you know, like the big, the big shed. But that is the, that's the mother of all real world applications, right? Once you do one thing, once you find one thing that you go, no, actually, I'm not going to do this, uh, that, you know, no, I'm not going to try to be like this. My example is that somebody said to me recently, God, your scripts are fun to read. So many scripts are are great cinematically, but they're boring on the page. And I said in so many words, yeah, I tried to write like that, but I can't do it. Like I tried to write boring on the page. I can't do it. Um, and so I'm just going to do it the way I can. Guess what? It goes better. When you find the first thing, the bandage dress or the whatever, that you're like, I don't need to do this or I won't do it and let the chips fall where they may, assuming it's not like your cost reports or something, yeah. it, it, you feel much more empowered in yourself and in your work and it gets that much better from there. It, it, but it's hard. I mean, I, I want to maybe take it back to Sandra and hopefully end on her because she she talked about, and not just with me, but she gave an interview to Vanity Fair last year and she talked about when she left Grey's Anatomy, 
it was four years before she was seeing work that she found interesting. Now, this is Christina Yang. Nine years on Grey's Anatomy, one of the most memorable characters. Everybody loved that character. Yes, they did. But I can see where, like, look, yes, they did. And Sandra Oh was fantastic as Christina Yang. But I can see where there was still an element of, not typecasting, but where people would have gone, oh, okay, she's a type A Asian medical student. Yeah. Here's all those scripts. Right. And she had to, listen, she's been like low profile for a while, right? Because she she had to say no. That's the hard part. So there's the bandage dress and saying no to the bandage dress. And then there's, yeah, it might mean that the weight's going to be long. That things go quiet for a while. Yeah. And being okay with the fact that that you're sitting in that, that things are not so busy or phone calls are ringing or whatever. That's a, that's a tough call. Yeah. like These are big orders that we're saying. That's right. And that's why I didn't want this to get too Pollyanna because like what we're saying here is not easy. And there are, I don't want to use the word consequences, but unfortunately, given the way the status quo is set up, it means that there is a certain amount of like restraint. Restraint? Well, I mean, she was getting offers. Uh, right. But, but they're not… The right Where ones. Where to go. That's right. Right. And there is like a skill that you have to learn or a restraint to be like, no, well, that is not what I want. Well, and the other side of that, which, uh, you know, we don't want to go on be four hours long, but I think the other side of that is I want to know about the dark night of the soul. I want to know about the thing that she passed up and then went, oh God, is that the last call that's going to come? Is that the last… Is nothing interesting ever going to come through the yeah. door? Maybe I should just take the thing and… Not worry about having interest, having an interesting career. Yep. So I think that's the other part of it is like not only is it hard, not only is there restraint, as I now understand your point, in waiting for the thing. I think it's also scary as yes. And when you're a trailblazer, when everybody around you is saying yes and you say no, I'm waiting. Yep. That's lonely too, mm-hmm. right? I'm sure there are people going, "What exactly are you waiting for?" Right. What is it going to be that you are, that's good enough for you and feeling like you're entitled to wait and knowing that that in and of itself, uh, whether that's a, you know, whether that's a promotion in the wrong direction or a new job or whatnot, the waiting can be dark and lonely as well. So, I mean, it speaks to, you know what it speaks to? It speaks to like that she's a badass and strong in her ideals and all that kind of thing. But it also goes back to what we started talking about, her long ass career. I would argue, and I don't know for sure, but I would argue that part of what made that okay is that she had seen decades of ups and downs before she was ever on ABC. You know, that was already well into her career. Sandra Oh, ladies and gentlemen. I'm delighted that it went as well for you as it did. Thanks. And I'm… Me too. …excited to find out that I'm sitting beside her at your next birthday party. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I… No, you're going to be seated way at the back, haha. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, but I do think that like I… When I see her again, I think I'll, I'll go 
in with more confidence. How there's about a, that? There's a kinship. There. Yeah. Yeah I, yeah. I buy that and I love that. I think that's great. And that wraps up this episode of Show Your Work. Thank you guys so much for everything that you've been sending our way. We love it, as you know, uh, especially when you send us notes that say, don't read this on air, but here's the dirt that's going on at my work. Yeah, we love those. Very delicious. Um, So keep them coming. Let us know what you think of these and all the topics, including whether or not you were able to see anything happening at Winterfell this week. (laughs) Subscribe to us where you get your podcasts. Leave us reviews and comments. They help so much. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.